hello and welcome to the Stop Stressing Me Out podcast. I'm your host, Victoria Smith. And today on the podcast, I want to go in what I think is quite an interesting direction. My guest today is Shulamit Berlevtov, and she is a therapist who works primarily with entrepreneurs. She's known on Instagram as the Entrepreneur's Therapist, (laughs) very aptly named. And while I am an entrepreneur, and much of her advice feels very applicable to me, having worked in a more traditional workplace job for the last two and a half years... I couldn't help but feel like the modern workplace has employees feeling so much more like entrepreneurs than ever, or at the very least, uh, gig workers in the gig economy. I feel like I know very few people these days who are in a job for more than four or five years, whether by choice, uh, through layoffs, shifting from one role to another. It just feels like the same in the way that entrepreneurs have to pivot so frequently and quickly and get very focused on what they want to do and what's possible, I feel like the same is true for traditional workers nowadays. Entrepreneurs can typically are typically known for having a little bit of a scarcity mindset, right? It can be a struggle to feel like there's enough leads, there's enough sales or revenue opportunities. But I feel the same is true for traditional workplaces where it feels like there's very few promotions, very few growth opportunities uh, in most places. You know, it struggles, you struggle to get uh, a raise in line with inflation. It just all felt very relevant. So that's one of the things that we talk about today. But we also talk about trauma in the workplace and how many of us can um, help recover from that. Because I think many of us have been through very traumatic workplace experiences, whether we recognize it as such. Um, And we talk a little bit about pandemic exhaustion, right? I know it's November 2023 and a lot of us want to say pandemic is over, but more than ever, the people that I talk to, my friends, my family, were exhausted from the last few years. Um, So we talk a little bit about what some of the meaningful changes are that we can make to this exhaustion as opposed to those sort of band-aid solutions that many of us reach for because they feel faster and they feel simpler. So we also talk a little bit in in this gig economy, like I said, where many of us feel like we are entrepreneurs. Uh, Shulamit shares some of the, the things that traditional workforce uh, workers can learn from entrepreneurs and vice versa. I found it such a great conversation and I hope you will as well. Just before we drop into it, um, things have been a little quieter over here. I'm still finding my feet as I've been uh, ramping up my business again in, in different ways and I tell you, cold and flu season with kids and, you know, family illnesses and all that kind of thing has just been a challenge, but we're, we're getting back into the swing of things here. Um, so a few things I just wanted to let you know about that are on the go. Uh, with the winter season approaching, I'm going to be doing a bit of a deal on some coaching packages. So if you're like, oh, 12 weeks just feels like too big of a commitment, I totally understand that. We're looking at like four or five session packages. And those are really geared towards helping you manage your stress, right? Creating a stress management plan, figuring out what your triggers are, figuring out what some of those uh, paths to resolution are or to managing self-care in a truly meaningful way. And honestly, I see these as a great way to kick off your 2024. So if that's of interest, just reach out to me, Victoria at Stressless Ladies and or uh, or connect with me on Instagram again at Stressless Ladies. And then a couple other things on the go in the new year, I'm going to be launching a group coaching program launching in February. We'll be opening the doors in January, and that is specifically geared towards people leaders. 
So if you're listening to this and you're like, I lead a team of people, whether that's three people or 10 people or 15, this program is going to be geared specifically to you. The first four weeks of the program is all about how we help you manage your personal stress because I love you, but if if we can't, if you're feeling overwhelmed and if you're feeling burnt out, you're not going to be able to help your team in the best way possible. And then the next week, uh, the next eight weeks are all about how you help your team manage their stress and burnout. So we're going to be talking about how to build psychological safety in the workplace. We're going to be talking about what are so those some of those systemic changes that you can make to help your team manage processes, efficiency, workload, all those things that uh, cause a little bit of stress. And we're going to teach you how to be a bit more of a coach with your um, with your team members. So we're going to practice how do you have those coaching conversations? How do you see those triggers and those warning signs when they might not be forthcoming with information and you want to make sure that you're in the best place to support them? We're going to be talking a little bit about professional development and how that ties into stress. And as well, how do you help manage um, stress leaves? I'm sure many of your team members have in the past taken stress leaves or may in the future and you want to be the best support possible. We're going to talk all about how to do that. It's going to be an absolutely incredibly impactful program and it's going to be kicking off in February and there's going to be limited uh, seats available for that. So if you're interested in that and want to like reserve your spot early, just reach out to me on Instagram at stresslessladies um, and I will get you some more information about that. But without further ado, let's head into the interview with Shulamit. Well, thank you so much, Shulamit, for joining me on the podcast. I'm so pleased to have you. I'm delighted. You know, we've been connected for so long on Instagram and uh, it's just been wonderful to get to know each other that way. And then to have it bloom into this opportunity. I'm really grateful. Well, I got to kick it off with like, what are, we're stop stressing me out podcast. What are the three random things (laughs) stressing you out this week? Big, small, whatever it is, whatever you're comfortable sharing. Uh, Well, the main thing is health stuff. We talked about this before a bit before we started the recording. Um, I traveled in February and got sick with some kind of upper respiratory virus and have been sick ever since. And it's, I'm just so, I wouldn't say stressed per se, but definitely frustrated, aggravated, you know, like, Mm -hmm. um, and it's frustrating dealing with the medical system. It's frustrating, not knowing what's going on, frustrating, having to try this, that, and the other thing and hoping that it'll work. That's very frustrating to me. Yeah. And so that, that brings my stress level up. Mm -hmm. Number two, well, isn't it funny because this week I've chosen to be a client's only week. And so, uh, I have not done any other work stuff this week, except this podcast interview. And so there's really nothing like on a normal week, I could have three or more things, but because I'm in a space of relaxation this week, because Mm -hmm. I've chosen to give myself this week, there are every month I take a week where I work half. So I, 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 I do my client service, but no other work, no admin, no marketing, no. So there's no pressure. And I, I'm, you're hitting me on the Friday of a week of that. Right. And I'm just feeling so relaxed and good and happy about that. But I'm remembering that on Sunday when I was doing my planning in order to like my calendar was blocked, but there are some things, some tasks that had that piled up that on Sunday I needed to attribute somewhere to make sure that they got done. And I remember on Sunday I was feeling kind of 
anxious around the time scarcity that I had more things to do than I had time to do them because I had committed to not doing them this week. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of stressful and anxiety provoking. Yeah. I do love that concept though, of taking like as an entrepreneur, taking one week of the month where it's like core work only, everything else can wait. Like it just gives your brain that ability to focus and relax. Like you're saying, I think that's great. Yeah. Such a deliverance for me. What I find hard because of the way my brain works, I'm not oriented to time. Mm -hmm. I don't orient to time very well. And so, uh, when I have meetings and things, I have alarms and I'm always, vigilant around the passage of time so that I don't miss things or if I have to hit deadlines. So I find that that's the main pressure in the work that I do. Um, And so the value of the so-called half work week is that my, I don't have to have that level of vigilance around time and, and showing up, you know, Mm -hmm. and to me, that's the kind of, I find the, um, always hitting the post, like always having to be ready for the next appointment, always having to be ready for the next, that from it, that just really wears on me. Right. Yeah. And, and just eliminating the majority of that from my week really gives my nervous system a vacation. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that awareness. Yeah. Yeah. It took a long time because what I thought I needed was more vacation. And I mean, entrepreneurs, if we don't work, we don't get paid. Right. So (laughs) There's only so much vacation that I can fund, you know, but this way I'm still getting paid, but I'm still having that vacation feeling in my body. Yeah. But it took me a long time to figure that out. Yeah. No, well, I'm definitely going to see how I can start implementing (laughs) that. I think it's a great strategy. Anything else? Or are those the two big things this week? I think that's, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. For me this week, I think I'm feeling not unlike most Canadians, just feeling that financial crunch our family at the moment. And so it's definitely been a hot topic of conversation around our house. I'm an entrepreneur and my husband is a um, hourly worker and there's just Mm. less work in the summer. Mm. And Mm. it's one of those, you know, it's cyclical, you know, September is coming and it's just, you've got to navigate that a little bit. So we're just, you know, Starbucks is not where I'm going for the next couple of months, but that's, that's okay. Cause it's all temporary. Right. And it sounds like you have some practice at riding this the tension around this? Not a lot to be fair, but, um, cause I was running my business before the pandemic, but my mm-hmm. husband mm-hmm. had a full-time salary job at that time. So oh, we right. at least had that level of stability. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of almost both in while well, he's not an, I don't know if you would consider an hourly worker, an entrepreneur in the same kind of way, but like, this is our first time in that dual, um, that dual uncertainty level. So yeah, I think yeah. it's, it's, it's the first season of it, but we've got some safety net behind us, but we just, you know, it's that, how can we be smarter with our grocery bills this week and all of that? Whereas it's yeah. summer and I just want to go, go buy Woo! an ice cream or yeah. go whatever. Like. So that's, yeah. you know, that's what's on our plate this week. Yeah. So I was hoping for our listeners, maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, how you got into your career. How to mm. have you been a therapist for a very long time? Is this sort of newer in life? And when did you decide to focus specifically on entrepreneurs? Mm-hmm. Reader's Digest consen- condensed version about how I became a therapist. Uh, when I was 19, I went to school for social work, uh, got diverted into other things. This is my third career now as a therapist. Uh, 
And in the course of the other work that I did, I became injured and had to do my own occupational rehabilitation. So uh, along with the jobs that I had had, I was always on the side having like, a, I don't know if now you call them side hustles, but I wasn't really hustling. It was just, mm-hmm. I was working one-on-one with women on the side in various personal growth type support. And so it made sense when I got injured that I would take that and integrate it along with going back to school and getting a master's degree so that I could do that kind of work full time. But also because I came to that late in my life and, uh, you know, starting a career from zero when you're an older woman and your employment prospects are not awesome. Mm -hmm. And also Uh, People think the gig economy is now, but I'm here to tell you the gig economy started 40 years ago in the (laughs) eighties when there were no jobs anymore. There were just contracts. And that's when I entered the job market. So I have no pension, no savings, no anything. So the job, whatever it was that I created for myself out of that occupational rehab had to be something that was in my control and that I could do basically until the day I died. Mm -hmm. So I became a therapist. But I knew that because my work needed to support me in the time that I had left to live, that I wanted to run a business, like run my practice like it was a business. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I jumped into business training and business coaching. I joined the chamber. I networked with other entrepreneurs because I wanted to learn how to run a business. Mm -hmm. And I began to understand for myself the emotional impact of of full-time self-employment full-time running a business. And then I built up a, a group practice and that is another, you know, it's one thing to be a solopreneur and another thing entirely to have a brick and mortar and a team. And, you know, it's enormously demanding. I'm sure you've experienced it. I'm sure many folks listening who are self-employed and have businesses um, recognize how demanding it was. And the other entrepreneurs I was hanging out with were also telling me about how their the emotional challenges and the mental health challenges that they were experiencing. And so I started as a trauma therapist, but I find it's very demanding work and you need to reorient at a certain point uh, so that the, um, the intensity of the work, you're still using your skills, but using them in a slightly different way. And when I became aware of the intersection of entrepreneurship and mental health, it became clear to me that there was a need For someone in the mental health arena, a professional who understood the intersection to support the entrepreneurs who needed that kind of support. And that's how the entrepreneur's therapist was born. Mm -hmm. I love it. And and part of the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast, because this podcast isn't just for entrepreneurs, but when we were chatting on social media, there were so many things that I could see mirrored the workplace nowadays, right? If I look back on not just my career, but the you know, careers of my peers or whatnot over the past decade, it's been like two years here, one year there, three years there. Like it I I love that you say the gig economy started in the 80s because it does I for me it feels just so much more like um pronounced in the past decade, but that's just you yes. know where I'm yes, at I in agree. life probably. But like there is that feeling of people in quote unquote traditional careers having to constantly reinvent themselves, find mm-hmm. new income sources, mm-hmm. find additional, like you know, working that side hustle or that second mm-hmm. job or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like we change careers so often. So yeah. What is it that you think that traditional workers can learn from entrepreneurs and maybe vice versa as well? 
Uh, well, for traditional workers, uh, there's a book called A Company of One. I forget the name of the author, but he really he really draws the draws out the connection between his his ideas that every person is even in a corporation, every person is a company of one, and he talks about self leadership. Uh, I don't think he uses that specific term, but he talks about like when you have a job, you are responsible for things. You're kind of like the CEO of your job and, and how you can approach what you're doing within the corporation uh, with a sense, not, not that you're a worker, but that you're a company of one. It depends on the culture of the company you're in, because some companies just want you to put your head down and do what you're told. Micromanage. Right? So I really, yeah, exactly. So I, I really want to recognize that this is not blanket applicable to all employees uh, and particularly service employees. I think that he was talking more with for people who are, you know, doing desk type jobs in corporations, but that you could think about like, where does my innovation come into play here? Where does my, where's marketing, does marketing play in this situation? What role do finances play in this situation? How can I look at what's the big picture of what I'm trying to accomplish and how can I break that down so that in the similar to the 12 week year type of planning where you do some high level visioning, some strategic planning for your own self and your own work. So you're not looking company wide, you're really looking at your purview, but you're doing it as if it were your business. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing I think that workers can, salaried folks can learn from the ideas around entrepreneurship. Um, the, the, the flip side to that, though, is that there's negative things that you can absorb, like, for example, the concept of the hustle. And, you know, entrepreneurship, I think, is really uh, entrepreneurs, everyone, we are all harmed by that concept of hustle culture and that we must work and we must be productive. Uh, entrepreneurs do it to ourselves out of survival sometimes we get stuck in that uh, especially the, in early days where you really do have to put in a lot of time and energy to get your business going uh, but it becomes a habit even when it's no longer necessary for many folks who are self-employed so to, to stop to think about like of the things I'm doing what of this is in line with my values and what of this is kind of unquestioning accept acceptance around the, the beliefs of hustle culture. So coming back to like, what can a employed person learn from entrepreneurship? I think there's a lot to be learned around the thread amongst entrepreneurs now who are talking about anti-hustle and rest, right? And there's a woman, Trisha Hersey, whose Instagram account is called Rest is Resistance. Uh, no, no, it's called the nap ministry. Yes. And her book is called, mm. yes. And her book is called rest is resistance. And so I think that's a good resource, a good place for people to start when they're starting to think about, okay, yes, I want as a worker to think about things strategically for me in my work and to include the concept of rest in my strategic thinking, rather than absorbing from within the corporation where the corporate culture might be that you have to burn yourself out in service mm -hmm. of the corporation or that you've absorbed it, you know, from hustle culture to begin to question that and structure your, some aspects of your work in ways that are satisfying to you. Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting. And I, I, I totally get the entrepreneur. Yeah. The hustle culture feels like it just exists across the board yes, and it it's that 
it feels like so much of our identities, and I don't know if this is just a North American problem, you can probably tell me better, but like where we just feel like our identities are so tied to what we produce and what we earn and not the person who we are and how we you know contribute to our communities how we are with our friends and that kind of thing like yeah yeah just in in North America the the those the roots of that way of thinking came with the pilgrim colonizers and the Calvinistic uh Protestantism that they brought with them and now we don't see the Calvinist Christian roots of those things but they are very present we have just de-religified I has not a really yeah. good you know but we strip the religiosity out of these things but um for example the way that folks will talk about their worth in terms of their productivity and that if I'm not producing I'm a worthless human and that's directly linked to Calvinist thinking mm-hmm. that 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 it's immoral to rest that people who people who rest are lazy that um you know so if i I won't go into this in great length people there's lots of other people who have written about this but you can that that's the that's the root of this and it is definitely um more present in north american culture than elsewhere in the real world because of how the u.s was established and how those values have become absorbed into the north american culture as a whole Well, it's interesting because I was reading a Gallup study the other day that was showing that Europeans compared to North American workers are less stressed. And a lot of that seems to be attributed to like the European lifestyle, the social services, all of that available, but they're less engaged at work um, than North Americans, which I thought was quite interesting. And I, I don't know what they've kind of come up with. This is total side tangent, but I don't know what the uh, solution is necessarily for engagement. And I wonder if that engagement well, I, is higher in North America because we feel like our jobs are our, our identities. But what what's your thoughts? Well, I'm thinking, what does who's, who's doing this study and what does engagement mean to them? And yeah. for what purpose should someone be engaged? If we think about capitalism, which is a global phenomenon, and we're looking at people who are studying workers in a capitalist society. The purpose of a worker is to be exploited. Yeah. Good old Marx, who back in the day pointed this out, and it's still very clear that the difference between the what you are paid and what the corporation makes for what you produce is um, is what goes to, that's how the company owners profit, mm-hmm. right? And so worker engagement or disengagement if it's tied, if they're looking at it from a lens of productivity, their interest in having you more engaged is so that you produce more mm-hmm. value for the company and that you are more exploitable, in fact, yeah. where I would wonder with Europeans if they have, because again, the Calvinist Protestants were, they came to North America because they didn't have a home, a f- philosophical home. They were, they, they felt, they believed they were persecuted. And so they left Europe for North America, where they could set up a, a society that where that was that was um, determined by their approach to things, mm-hmm. right? So part of me wonders if that they were fleeing a culture in Europe that they did not support, and that the culture in Europe that they were fleeing is more like what we would want, and that if workers there are not engaged, quote unquote, at work, is it because they are 
putting their work in proper relation to their humanity and their cultures and communities. And that it's one, it's in balance as opposed to the number one priority where as in North America, you know, overall, I would say most people believe work is their number one priority and family comes second. And there's a lot of talk about work-life balance, Mm -hmm. but when you look at just the hours that people spend, if you do like uh, time studies on things, people are spending disproportionate amount of time at work, time and effort at work, even though we have a discourse about balance. Yeah. Well, and the energy that you're able to bring home after a stressful work day. And so yeah, exactly. No, that's really, really interesting. So it, it, that kind of ties back a little bit to scarcity though, right? Like the, mm. the feeling, like what we were talking about, the feeling of scarcity around job availability, uh, the the financial scarcity as well that we have yeah. the like what the economy is looking like all those different things time scarcity also. time scarcity right like mm-hmm. for entrepreneurs I think it can feel like the scarcity of sales or opportunities or leads and I think for like the traditional workforce that can feel like there being very few like promotion opportunities mm-hmm. at work right like there is one available position and there's 10 of us who are fully qualified to do it or bonuses not being like evenly distributed or your abilities to advance in any way and do like more interesting Mm -hmm. work beyond what you're doing. How can we begin to, as an individual, combat this scarcity mindset? Because it can eat away at you. Yes, yes. So I want to make a distinction between scarcity and scarcity mindset. Okay. And because it's important even to begin the discussion to make that distinction. And you named a number of actual instances of, of resource limitations. Right. Right. So literally there can be not enough of something Mm -hmm. and that can be a perceived lack or an actual lack. So for example, um, love can be, you can have a perceived lack of access to love or belonging or community or whatever. Uh, Or you may actually not be experiencing that. You may experience like time scarcity for me as an entrepreneur around my planning and my tasks. Um, A lot of, you know, it looks like I have more to do than there are hours in the day. And so there are, there are facts around that. And then there's my belief that I can't, the kind of self-talk, I can't get this done. There's never enough time for me. There's too many things. I'll never finish this, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so scarcity has an impact on thinking and on the nervous system. And that impact is independent of whether scarcity is real or perceived. Right. If your organism perceives that something some resource is in limited supply that evokes a fear reaction in your physiology. So it's like a threat. It registers like a threat in your body. And this is where scarcity, what I would call scarcity psychology, not scarcity mindset, but scarcity psychology kicks in because when your organism perceives a threat, it has certain structured ways of responding to threat. You've heard of fight, flight, freeze, fawn, right? Yep. Those are organismic responses, not necessarily behavioral responses, but they, 
They occur in the body when a threat is perceived. And this, we can work with this. It's not even a problem. Where I get worked up is when people talk about scarcity mindset and you just have to choose abundance and you just have to <laughs> see all the see all the blessings around you and it's like the said, secret you, it's the secret <laughs> oh my god like barf the thing is until we can understand and work with what our organisms what our organism is doing in response to threat we that it's a bypass to to, to jump to those things those things are important aspects like uh, how you think about things how you talk to yourself affirmations uh, gratitude, all that stuff. These are important skills, but we can't bypass the first step, which is to recognize, oh, I'm, I'm somehow getting the idea that there's something in short supply here and my body is reacting. My nervous system is reacting in fear. And until I can attend to myself and my fear, uh, I can't, that's the first, I, I, none of that other stuff is going to work for me mm -hmm. for the most part. So the very first step, whenever you're feeling scarcity of something, whether it's real or perceived is to recognize what's going on and to say, oh, right. Like there's, there's some scarcity thing going on. I'm feeling kind of threatened or afraid and to just stop right there and go, oh yeah, that's what's happening. And what I like to do is place a hand palm down on my chest area as I say to myself, right, yes, I'm, I'm feeling, usually for me, it's anxious. I'm feeling anxious right now. Like when I'm doing my bookkeeping and paying my bills, you know, I can find the <laughs> anxiety coming up because self-employed, you know, it, it's like yeah. precarious sometimes the money. So I'll say to myself, okay, so I'm feeling anxious. I'm noticing what's happening. Like my, I'm noticing right, even now my belly's a little tight. Um, my breath is a little shallow. So I'm taking a moment to acknowledge what all's happening here. And then after noticing and acknowledging is to validate. Yes. Like, of course you would feel anxious. You're concerned. There were times in the past when there wasn't enough to go around and you had to try and figure things out. You had to maybe underpay some things. And, you know, like there were times mm -hmm. when I personally didn't get a salary in my business. So these parts of me that remember these things, you know, are legitimately concerned. Like they have memories of scarcity and of how, of the difficulty and they're concerned. This now is reminding them of that and they're anxious about it. So that's the second thing is to validate. And then the third thing is to um, pause. And that's what I'm going to do right now is just pause with myself. And to say, right, of course, of co it's okay to be feeling anxious. Who wouldn't be feeling anxious under these circumstances? It's like a universal situation. Anybody facing this would be feeling anxious, you know? And I'm, and I gotcha. This part of me that's worried about, or anxious about this, like, I'm here with you. I got you. You're not on your own with this. And at that point, um, what happens is your nervous system stabilizes enough that you can then either turn toward the task or engage with some of the support of self-talk if you want. So then I could say to myself, um, 
And also there have been times where things worked out. In fact, there were many, many times when things worked out. And then you can tell yourself the story a couple of times of the things mm -hmm. that worked out, if that's what you need, so that your organism can settle a bit more and then you can turn toward the task at hand. Uh, and that's how in the moment when you're having like a, what I would call a scarcity attack, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that's that, great. That, that the scarcity psychology, that threat is perceived and the scarcity psychology kicks in, that you can attend to that so that you can then turn back to the task at hand. Because if they're truly it either, you will see, oh, that's right. There's no, there's no actual scarcity here. My body is responding. Um, you know, for some reason it perceived that there was, but when I kind of get my head on straight, like my prefrontal cortex comes back online and I can actually see what's going on here. I can see there really is no threat and things are fine. Or you can say you um, can address the actual scarcity at hand by taking the appropriate steps, action steps that need to, to be taken to address whatever's going on. So there's, you know, that's the difference between the actual and the perceived mm -hmm. that perceived is the inner work. And then you get the reassurance and then you're like, oh, I can relax. This is no big deal. Or if, if there is something, then you can actually take the action steps to address them. Yeah. Cause we, if we don't take steps two and three, we can't like unlock that prefrontal cortex to think critically. Like we're just in that 100%. fight or flight. And yeah, I would yeah. imagine, like, I feel like most of us generalization here are good at like recognizing number one, like, oh, I'm feeling anxious. Like, I think a lot of us can be aware sure. of that, but we're not taking steps two and three. And so as a no. result, it's kind of like compounding. So the next time an event or a feeling of scarcity comes up, we're kind of like already elevated yeah. and it just adds up. Yes. 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 And what we'll often do, what our second step often is in the moment is well, don't be worried. Come on. What's the matter with you? We've done this a hundred times. You know, there's plenty of money in the bank. This is one of the things that folks, you know, that I work with lots of folks who have money in the bank, but are still anxious. Yeah. Right. But they'll, they'll talk to themselves as if the worry part has no legitimacy. Yeah. And that's like, I don't know if you've ever confided in someone about how worried you were about something. And they said, Oh, don't be ridiculous. Yeah. Like, don't worry. Yeah. Don't worry. You'll be fine. And they're not, they're not meaning to uh, they're not meaning to cause harm. They really want for you not to have to worry. And they're trying to be reassuring by saying, oh, don't, you don't have to worry about this. You've got this. You'll do fine. Meanwhile, you're like, uh, but I actually am worried. Right. And it just, yeah. as you say, compounds it. It makes things worse. And this is why all of us need to be talking to a therapist because they will not invalidate your feelings. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and we have those, like, obviously I'm a therapist and I hundred percent believe that that's therapy is important. And validation is important. Professional support is important. And we can also teach our dear ones that what we need first is for them to say, oh, yes, I hear that you're feeling yeah. really anxious. And of course you would feel anxious. No wonder. Right? Yeah. We can train the people we love to respond to us in ways that are supportive. Yeah. Oh, I've had to do this with my husband. I love him dearly, but he goes into problem solving mode and it's yeah, been very same. much a, I don't need you to solve this. I just need to say it and a hug. That's all I need. Yeah. Like, yeah. so, and it's a process for him as well. Like you, you can see him just like, I want to try and solve this. I want to try and solve this, but I'm like, I might have energy for that tomorrow. Today is not the day. Yeah. 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 And I mean, when our lids are flipped, when our prefrontal cortex is offline and the friend, the beloved wants to help, we can't process 
any information they're trying to give us about possible solutions anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I, so I really appreciate those three steps and I'll make sure we uh, include those as a Coles notes version in the yeah. description of the podcast. I wanted to talk, switch gears a little bit and talk about pandemic exhaustion. We're yeah. in July, 2023 right now. Yeah. And I feel like a just mass portion of the population is just like pandemic's done. We're moving on. Life is normal. And yet so many people I talked to were just so damn tired. Like yeah. we are so exhausted in a way that we haven't been pre-pandemic or maybe even during pandemic because we were in that fight or flight. We had a purpose. Yeah, we were yeah. we were doing what we're doing. Are you seeing this in your work? And like, how do you, if so, how do you suggest people make meaningful change as opposed to like band-aid solutions? Yeah. I'm not seeing it in my work so much. Um, folks who are approaching me now are, are not approaching me because they're feeling burnt out. Um, it's, it's other topics that are bringing them uh, mm-hmm. to work with me, other, you know, uh, stated problems that they want to solve. But amongst my peers and colleagues uh, and in the online world, I hear a lot of uh, self-employed folks talking about this sense of exhaustion, like, and they're asking themselves, oh, it's just business burnout. I've overdone it. I've worked too hard, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, there is, it, it is important to ask the question, but what I'm um, concerned about is that it seems to be the blanket answer. And I think there's a systemic slash uh, cultural phenomenon at play, which as you say, is post-pandemic exhaustion, post, I put post in quotation marks, because whether you believed in what was happening or not, you have experienced a traumatic, a globally traumatic event. And it was as traumatic for the people who didn't believe because they were living in a world where they thought everybody was crazy and they knew what was right uh, and what was actually going on. And that it's terrifying to live in that kind of environment. Mm -hmm. And if you did believe in what was happening, then you were fearing for your life. Well, and, and I'm imagining that people who didn't believe were also fearing for their lives. And that's a hallmark of trauma. If you're fearing from your, for your life uh, and you're feeling alone with that fear and overwhelmed, be, like, uh, over, like it's not within your capacity to deal with what you're facing. And I'm sure that, pe- like I know for a fact that people on both sides mm-hmm. were completely overwhelmed and ha- did not have the tools to handle what was happening to them. That's trauma. We've yeah. all been traumatized that doesn't mean we're all going to have PTSD because how PTSD shows up in folks, there's, it's a very complex uh, etiology, very complex um, causal relationships between many, many factors, but we all have been through a trauma and that has had a, an impact on us. And the image I like to use, you talked about this. Um, you mentioned, use the term um, like that we were activated during those two years. The image I like to use is of like, of, um, horses on a racetrack with the, um, and they're uh, behind the start, the pace car. And the pace car has those big wings. And so every horse is all lined up behind the wings of the pace car. And they're, they set the pace as you're going along the racetrack. And, but you're, 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 you're jonesing because you're like ready to run, mm-hmm. right? And what ha- is supposed to happen for the horses when the pace car folds its wings in, the horses who have been pent up, take off like a shot. 
Mm-hmm. But we've been held behind the wings of the pace car for two and a half or three years. And we had a belief that when those wings were folded up, that we would just take off like a shot. But the impact of having been held back for so long means that metaphorically speaking, now that the pace car wings have folded, instead of taking off, we all just collapsed on the racetrack. Mm -hmm. Without the pace car there in front of us, we just kind of all fell down because we are worn out like on an organismic level from having revved, you know, so high, so hard for so long that you, you just at a certain point become exhausted. You have nothing, you're, you've got nothing left in the gas tank and it's it, the nature of trauma is that it takes time to recover. It takes time for your nervous system to stabilize. It takes time to get resourced and reoriented. There are parts of you that are still on, on, um, on alert for danger. And it takes time for those parts of you to catch up to the current situation and say, okay, this is, this is different now. And like to create the bridge of communication in the mind, you know, and in the nervous system so that the parts that remember how it was for the past two years can catch up with the current reality. And we can have some sort of relaxation around that. That is a process that's going to take long time. I would say a year, two years, three years, maybe before we fully, not that it's going to suck for the whole three years, but that it's going to take for us to come back incrementally up to where we were in our organisms in terms of our resilience and our capacity, our resilience skills and our capacity. It's going to take time. And it's so hard, I think, to come back up to that level of like, what was our net normal when we might not be having you know, lockdowns or anything anymore, but in your own life, you have different um, major stressors that are occurring, you know, loved ones getting diagnosed with cancer, you know, whatever it is, like you've got different things that are happening that are just re-triggering that response. And it's like, it's so hard to get back to neutral because it's not just the one thing that's draining you. Yeah. Well, are you, are your listeners familiar with the concept of the window of tolerance? Maybe, maybe not. Well, I just was wondering if you had talked oh, we've about not, it We've not. I don't think we've talked about it. Okay. No. So the window of tolerance is a concept. Um, the window of tolerance is a kind of a middle place for your nervous system where there are ups and downs, but it, you know, the ups are not too high and the downs are not too down. It's just like normal. Mm-hmm. But there is a line above which there is hyper arousal too much mm-hmm. and hypo arousal. There's a line below which it's hypo arousal, not enough. And so the nervous system may find itself after having run at the top of its window of tolerance for a long, 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 long time, that when an irritant comes along, that when you were in the middle of the window of tolerance, brought you up to the top, but didn't pop you out of it. If, you're, if you've been at the top forever and an irritant comes, it pops you out of your window of tolerance. So you quote unquote overreact. Mm-hmm. You're like, why am I reacting like this? This is only a minor thing. Well, it's because you've been at the top of your window of tolerance for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, as you just said, which is why I wondered if you had talked about the window of tolerance before, if, um, if you've been up at the top for a long time, even when there aren't irritants, it takes a long time to come down. And even when you're on your way down, if an irritant comes, it'll, it can pop you back up to the top much faster than it would have had you been in the middle to start. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a, it's a very stair-stepped, we don't just suddenly we're free and better. It's a stair stepped down with some ups 
Yeah. You know, it's, it's like a, a wobbly, um, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you a link to the, to a graphic so that yeah, folks yeah. can see the visualization of what we're talking about. Yeah. And I, re- I talked about hyper and hypo arousal in my book, but I don't know that I necessarily framed it as the window of tolerance, but mm. um, I'm curious because I, I love a action list, right? I recognize that like the coming down is a long process, many different things, but like yeah. from your perspective, what are some of the best things we can do to begin that coming down process? Mm. Well, I have three principles of stress resilience that I teach. Uh, and I think applying these three principles would be helpful. So the, the three principles are soothe, discharge, and nourish. Mm-hmm. These are for your nervous system. So giving your, yourself, your organism experiences that soothe you, that make you kind of go, ah, right. And these are mental, emotional, and physiological, uh, and they have to be experiential. So you have to engage in, in experiences that provide you with that feeling in your body. Mm-hmm. discharge is emotional discharge and physical discharge. So I'm not talking necessarily, um, ac- uh, exercise. If you hate exercise, I'm not talking about that. It'll be another stressor. Don't bother, but just moving your body in ways that feel good to you. Mm-hmm. And this is why I teach principles, not, and I don't tell people specifically because what, ha- what everybody likes for movement varies, right? Oh yeah. Um, so you move your emotions in whatever way works for you, venting to a friend, crying at a sad movie, writing in a journal, whatever, uh, so discharge emotions and discharge your physiology, uh, because of course, if you don't discharge your physiology, as I'm sure you've talked about with your, in your book and with your clients and in your podcast, it just builds and builds and builds and builds, yeah. right? It becomes a mind body feedback loop that just, and if you discharge that you're sending the message to your body that you're okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And then nourish has to do, it's a very wide category that includes spirituality, but also includes like connection, support, um, play, uh, creativity, all those kinds of things, reading uh, inspirational literature, could be going to a worship service, whatever it is that uplifts you and gives you juice to continue. Mm-hmm. And I uh, advocate that folks identify what their, what soothes, discharges and nourishes them and their nervous system, and then finds a way to implement these in their lives on a daily basis, mm-hmm. because we need regular messages of soothe, discharge, and nourish to our nervous system and our organism to to bring into balance with the threat messages. And the threat messages are always going to come, right? It's a question of degree, like an email, you're not going to die from that, but it does require mobilization energy in your body to Mm -hmm. respond to that email uh, or to respond to the yelling kid, right? (laughs) Or to pay the bills. Um, And so to make sure, to do your best to engage in the three principles as they fit you, on a daily basis. Yeah. And because I work with entrepreneurs, something that's really important in, um, to understand for all folks, but it, it's really um, for entrepreneurs quite poignant. Th- it's not to create stuff to put on your to-do list. It's rather, I would invite you to see what you're already doing to soothe, yeah. discharge and nourish yourself and your organism and do those things with awareness and mindfully so that you can take in the benefits that you're experiencing. You're already doing them. Just bring your whole self to it and you will get the benefit, mm-hmm. right? And then maybe think about doing more of those same things, like doing them more frequently, but they should—they don't have to be big like spa dates or a week long vacation. It's little five minute interventions that can really support your nervous system 
in down-regulating in that window of tolerance and beginning its journey down the mountain to the middle, you know? Yeah. And if you're enjoying, like, if you bring that intention to it and you realize you're really enjoying that five minutes of whatever it is, you're more likely to do it again because you'll have the motivation of what it feels like, but only if you're truly aware as opposed to distracted in the moment. I love it. Yeah, I agree. I know we're tight on time, so I want to talk really quickly about trauma in the workplace. Big topic for a short space of time. Um, I think whether you're an entrepreneur or someone in a traditional working uh, space, there can be traumatic workplace experiences. And there's some that come to mind really easily, like being laid off from a job, um, abuse or harassment in the workplace. But what are maybe some of those traumatic workplace experiences that we might not easily recognize? Well, the thing that comes to mind to for me right away is um, so-called microaggressions, mm-hmm. which are not micro at all. You know, anybody who has any kind of non-dominant identity will experience harm just by virtue of being in places where the norm does not fit them. And so for working with entrepreneurs, I have seen many folks who've uh, started their own business as a result of workplace trauma. For example, during COVID, many people of color came home and worked from home. They still were the same job, but they were at home and not in that workplace where they are exposed to racial microaggressions daily or many times daily. They realized that their mental health was so much better and they decided, well, F that I'm not going to go back to that workplace. I'm going to create a healthy workplace for myself, which means creating my own job for me. Folks with disabilities, folks with mental health challenges, folks with families, even, which is not necessarily workplace trauma, but you can experience um, um, bias and prejudice and stigma at work if you're a parent who's actively engaged in parenting and who leaves in some cultures, you leave the workplace at X time because you're picking up your children and that's your commitment, mm-hmm. you know, that that can also be, that's not traumatic, but that's another reason, another non-dominant identity yeah. that has an impact on your mental health when you're at work, when you get crap for that, right? So like all the um, oppressive systems that we experience in the larger world, people experience at work, uh, in a much more intensified way. And unless there's, unless there's uh, an understanding of that at, at the workplace, unless there's some group way, collective way of addressing the systemic reinforcement of these things, as an individual, there's not a great deal that you can do in the workplace. The research that I've done when I worked, uh, when I didn't work exclusively with entrepreneurs, I um, worked a lot with business and professional women mm-hmm. and before that, and at that time also, but when I first started my career, I worked with survivors of domestic violence. And because I had that domestic violence recovery lens and these business and professional women were coming to me about harassment and bullying at work, I went, this is just like domestic violence. But yeah. we, use the, we use the words harassment and bullying, which really takes the teeth out of what's actually happening. It's abuse. It's abuse in the workplace and uh, it happens a lot, but the research shows that the real, the only solution for that is to leave yeah. because the institutional structure 
is going to perpetuate itself over you as an individual. And unless you can find mobilize and find support and make collective action to change the institution, which is very hard. Yeah. And if you're having mental health impacts from the traumas that you've experienced at work, you're not necessarily resourced enough to mobilize a whole systemic response to the issue. The only solution is to leave, which is sad, but true. Yeah. It's interesting. I didn't think of it as the, well, yeah, it's interesting that the microaggressions, which are, do not feel so micro, how those add up over time and just the way in which they trigger your response to its system. I mean, I, and I can relate to that because I started my business as a, as a response to a traumatic workplace experience. Right. And it was, yeah, no, that's, I really appreciate your insight on that. And I want to mention specifically that there is a, an organization called the Canadian Institute of Workplace Harassment and Violence. It's a not-for-profit organization that has just been uh, established. Uh, and I can give you the information about that to put in the, um, the, in show, the show notes. notes sure. Because this, this is new and I wish it had existed when I was working with survivors yeah. of workplace harassment and bullying because this goes a long way towards, because what happens is the worker thinks it's their fault. Yeah. Right. And it becomes, it becomes an individual problem and has a significant mental health impact. People can even experience PTSD as a result. Right. Yeah. And one of the great healing processes around both domestic violence and workplace harassment and bullying is to recognize that it's actually not you. It is the person who has caused the harm and that there are systems in place that support the perpetration of that harm. And when you can realize that it's not you and not only you, and it's not your fault, like it's community that does that, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why I think that this institute is really important. I'll give you the link and you can put it in the show notes. Amazing. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, with the limited time we've got left, we're just going to go into our rapid fire questions. I feel like I could talk to you all day. Right? So maybe <laughs> maybe there'll be a part it. two at some point. Uh-huh. Who knows? But um What's your top one piece of advice, I guess, what people should be thinking about when looking for a therapist? Mm, fit, like fit. Pers- personal, personal, like to use a, a vibe. Yeah. Right. So I recommend very strongly that you interview your therapist, that you um, ask for a free uh, 20 minute, half an hour conversation with them where you interview them. But the purpose is not really to get information. The purpose of that is to interact with them, Mm -hmm. see how they are with you and notice what's happening in your mind and your body and your emotions. Because how you feel with them is what's going to make it possible for you to be able to work with them. So Mm -hmm. for sure, find the people, you know, screen them by values match and skill match. And then of those who have a values match and a skills match and a cultural match, maybe also interview three of them and see really how you feel. Like, I mean, literally how you feel. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that would be what I would say uh, when you're choosing from those three, go with the one who, with whom you feel the best. Uh, But I also have a post uh, and I'll give you a link to that of criteria people can use to choose for choosing the right therapist for them. And I would just say to anyone, don't worry if this takes time. It took me like a decade to find my therapist, but I love her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What grounds me a long time too. Yeah, for sure. What grounds you the quickest when you're feeling overwhelmed? Is it that heart to 
hand to heart that you were talking about before the steps? Yes, it really is that the, for me now, I, it's not in, I don't do it uh, broken down in the steps. Like I said, it's enough to place the palm of my hand on my heart space and take a breath or two, because that then engages the physiology that uh, is there because of how many times I've done it right. That I don't have to use the words anymore. My body just knows what I'm doing when I place my hand here and it responds. Right. And I can relax. I can come into a relationship with myself. And if that doesn't work, I sing. Yeah. Yeah. I have songs, meaningful songs, particularly from the yoga tradition. There's a, it's called Kirtan, which is a call and response singing from the yoga tradition that really, uh, really helps me come back into my heart, come back into a sense of love. Yeah. That's, I find that very powerful. Well, you may have just answered my final question, but what nourishes you the most? Oh, well, it's what, it's a practice called sustain, sustainable compassion. Okay. It's a, it's a school of meditation training called sustainable compassion training. That's for folks who do hard work, like doctors and therapists and activists. Mm-hmm. And the foundational practice to that is what's called the field of care, locating yourself in a field, a larger field of care. Uh, and that's what this gesture for myself of the hand to heart and the singing, what they do is they help me locate myself in that field of care. And yeah. without that, I encountered that about right early in the pandemic. And I just don't even know how I would have managed. I mean, I've been seeing Kirtan for forever, but the, the, that, that idea that that locates me in this vast field of care that I'm caring for others and they are caring for me. And that it's even bigger than just people. It's like by breathing in and out, my environment cares for me and I care for it, right? Mm -hmm. How interconnected we are to be located in that great network of caring. Just that's, that's what, I mean, I don't know if you can see my, what's happening in my facial expression and the color in my face. And I can feel it in my body, the warmth that comes as I talk about it. Uh, And I just, oh, that's the thing that does it for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Shulamit, for your time. I've so loved having you on the podcast. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I There's so many good nuggets that I look forward to taking away from it. So just a reminder, uh, all the links and everything that Shulamit and I discussed are in the show notes for today. And as well, if you are interested in those one-on-one coaching packages that I discussed, or you want to learn a little bit more about the people leader Uh, sort of mid-level manager, people leader, uh, stress management training that I'm going to be running in February, and you want to snag one of those spots super early or get more information, you can reach out to me at victoria at stresslessladies.com or on Instagram at stresslessladies. So have a fantastic week and as always, take good care. 